0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Adler. Rabbi Adler earned his BA and MA from Yeshiva University, as well as his rabbinic ordination from YU's Rabbi Yitzhak Elchanan Theological Seminary. Additionally, Rabbi Adler holds a PhD in Talmud from Bar-Elan University. Rabbi Adler has served as a synagogue communal rabbi in locations such as Long Island City, Beersheba, Ramot, Zurich, and Katamon, Jerusalem. Rabbi Adler is also the founding Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Pnei Akiva near Tamid in Chashmonaim, Israel. Rabbi Adler is a popular lecturer, author, and educator, and Rabbi Adler was a student and assistant slash uh, quote-unquote driver, to Hagaon Rav Yosef Ber Halevi Soloveitchik, the Rav. And today we will be discussing Rabbi Adler's absolutely fascinating and and really just, you know, it's one of those books that you read not just once, but, you you know, my kids kept saying, I said, Abba, why do you have this book again and again and again? It's such a thin book. I said, you can read this over and over and and, uh, 70 conversations in transit. With Hargon, Harab, Joseph B. Soloveitchik, Zechat Sadek Rafa, And uh, Rabbi Adler, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much, Rabbi Lieberman, and uh, for this uh, invite to talk about the book, which um, was written three years ago and published two years ago in 2021. It was my COVID project. Uh, okay. We were locked up for two months, and I decided that the time has come to put to writing some of these wonderful conversations that I had thereof in the 1970s when, indeed, I served that as his personal driver in New York City for three years.
0: One of the benefits of COVID. So there's always, it there was always good from everything. Um, just to get started, obviously, Rav um, Soloveitchik commuted for many years from Boston to New York, which, of course, is the, theme of um, the Sefer, the book, the conversations that Rabbi Adler had while he picked up the Rav and uh, brought him to Yeshiva University, Um, did Rav Soloveitchik's position on reciting the blessing, Birkat HaGomel, giving thanks for air travel, stem from an objective reason or his subjective feelings of the traveler?
1: Okay, for starters, I would tell you that the Rav who flew every single week did not bench Gaimel, did not say the Brachah of Gomel after each flight. Um, He actually uh, voiced this several times in Shirim, um, that he believed that the four uh, indications in the Gemara, in Maserib Brachot, of those who are um, advised, and I use the word advised, to say the Brachah of Gomel. The Gemara does not say... Obligatory. The Gemara does not say, Arba'a Chayavim Lehodot. The Gemara says, Arba'a srichim Lehodot uh, are strongly advised to say the Bracha of Gomel, which is in place of a Thanksgiving sacrifice from the days of the Beit HaMikdash. um the, the Gemara cites four scenarios, and uh, one includes travel on the high seas. It also includes travel in the, the desert, it includes a, a an ill, a seriously ill person who recuperated, and a person who was in prison and was freed. Um, the Rub was of the opinion that all four scenarios were scenarios or situations of uh, life-threatening uh, situations. Um, the, each one, which he said, if a person has a cold and 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 after a few days of chicken soup and tea, uh, you know, feels better, that does not require a Gomel. The Rub felt that only somebody who was hospitalized or in serious condition at home that may have, uh, could have possibly developed into a life-threatening situation, there there was room for gomel, and there was also room for some subjective fluctuation, because the Gemara says, tzarechim, tzarech means a need. So you might have two people in identical situations where one person feels a great need to thank God that he got out of this uh, situation, and the other person said, well, it was okay, it wasn't such a bad thing after all, and so on. And each one um, is, is in a in a, a situation where you can be comfortable with. With regard to air travel, here becomes a discussion, because Rav Moshe Feinstein believed that there's no major difference between traveling over the high seas, whether the boat is in the water or you're 30,000 feet up in the air, you're traveling the high seas. Whereas the Rav felt that this has to be measured in terms of the uh, the danger zone. There's no question about the fact that in the days of the Gmarat, in the days of the Middle Ages, Travel in the high sea was a tremendous, dangerous situation. It was life-threatening. Many people never made it to the other side. Boats sank and capsized because of uh, severe weather uh, conditions. Uh, there were there were pirates on the high seas. The Rambam's brother uh, went down in the Indian Ocean uh, with all his wares. This is something that was known, and there's no question that this was dangerous to the extent. That one of the authors of the Tosfot, Rabbeinu Chaim Cohen, in Masechet Ketubot says that today we don't really have an obligation to move to Eretz Yisrael because it's a dangerous move. This was said in France in the 13th century. And if somebody waves that view today uh, and says, well, you know, I really can't leave New York or uh, Gold is Green uh, or or, or South Africa because, uh, you know, flying is dangerous let the record stand clearly that it is 4,000 4, times more dangerous to get into a car and drive than fly a plane today, statistically. 4,000 times more dangerous. And therefore, the rub believed that in a routine flight situation, there's no need for mail at all. Uh, but if, you know, something happens to the plane, uh, God forbid, a crash and you survive, or uh, as it happened in the movie Sully, where I remember the case in 2009 where the, uh, the captain brought, put the plane down in the Hudson River after both engines were hit by birds. You certainly have to say go, Mill, after that kind of uh, situation. But not a routine flight that everything is just fine. That was his opinion.
0: And the Rav wouldn't have distinguished between uh, domestic flights and international flights. The same principle applies.
1: Yeah, you see, they... Um, that distinction between domestic and international was voiced by Rav Bracha, the author of the Tzitzel who said that he thought that the dangers in air travel was hijacking, and the hijackings in his day were all international flights. Of course, unfortunately, 9-11 put an end to that idea because all four flights were domestic flights, and the, the tragic uh, results are, are readily uh, obvious. So it has nothing to do with whether being overseas per se. It has to do with how you measure up uh, a flight. Now, I know some people who have uh, suffer from uh, fear of flying, and, and sometimes because of need, they have to fly, and they're just nervous the entire flight. And thank God the plane landed, and if they want to get up and say, Goemel, well, go right ahead. The rough felt like Shecheyanu, Gomel is a type of bracha that if you really, really mean it, it cannot be a bracha in vain, if, if, you, if, you really, if you're serious about this. Um, my sister lives in Hashmonaim, and there, there are many, many people who work in high-tech and would go to the States in Monday and come back on Friday. And that and on Shabbat, by shvi, by lining, by reading of the Torah, you'd have about 20, 30 people lining up to say gomel. The rabbi put an end to it, and he said one guy can say gomel, and and, and everybody can say amen, and you know, forget it. You can't have 30 people saying gomel for this. So my sister coined the phrase, the mo'adon ha-gomel ha-matmid, that the people, it's, it's their gomel club. Uh, that every single week, and the truth is, would every week a person run to Beit Hamikdash to offer a korban todah, a Thanksgiving offering, for sure not. So we should not waste the opportunity and and make it into a routine type of bracha. It should be used for special. Should be reserved for special occasions.
0: Yeah. Uh, Rabbi you, you mentioned in, in, in the book that um, Rav Salvechik had a uh, interest in the topic of electricity. Um, what was the Rav Rav Soloveitchik's position regarding electricity? Why did he feel that he had much to contribute to the subject? But on the other hand, why do we not see any published works particularly on this subject?
1: Okay, so that's a little complex. On the issue of electricity, in the very, very big debate that went on many years ago with the advent of electricity, ultimately, the view of the Chazanish Uh, prevailed, and that was that electricity has to be seen under the framework of construction when you're closing a circuit or opening a circuit, and that's how he saw it. And hence, it would be a biblical violation to use electricity on Shabbat and on Yom Tov as well. This was the Chazanisha's opinion. However, not everybody went along with the Chazanisha's opinion. The Rav had a different take on it, and he believed it had to do with uh, transferring a fire. If you see electricity as something that's a fire element, and now you're moving it from one uh, place to another in order to activate a bulb or, or, or some machinery, uh, that would be the problem of Havarat Aish. If that's the case, then it would be perfectly permissible on Yom Tov to actually use uh, uh, put on electric light. And indeed, that was the Ruv's opinion back in the 30s and in the 40s and 50s in Boston, what happened was, I think Rav Aaron Cutler's opinion took over the the general you know orthodox world and people stopped, even in Boston, I know this, they stopped using electricity on Yom Tov. But in the 40s and 50s, many devoutly religious orthodox Jews in Boston would put the lights on, not shut them off, but put the lights on on Yom Tov because this is the Rav's opinion of how he understood electricity. Now, as to the question of how did he understand electricity? Is it simply because he saw it as uh, havarat eish, uh, fire moving? It's much deeper than that. And the Rav believed that from a physics point of view, and let's just point out parenthetically, the Rov knew science very, very well. From a physics point of view, he believed that he could justify um, a level of acceptance of electricity on Shabbat, but he preferred not publishing it. There are two reasons the rub didn't publish many things until very, very late in life, which is in conformity with the, I call it the Soloveitchik, uh, um, uh, you know, they, they, they had a, a type of uh, allergy, if you may, to the printing press. Uh, the the rub's grandfather, for Brisk, on the tombstone in Warsaw, it says he left a manuscript of novellae on the Rambam's Mishneh Torah. He never saw it in print. And the reason is that the Salvationians believe that as long as you're breathing, as long as you're talking, as long as you can say, you can correct, you know, don't run to the printing press. But after 120 years, it can be brought to a printing press. So that was one thing. It was this general allergic reaction to the print. But furthermore, I think the Rav didn't want to challenge what was already becoming accepted in the... Uh, orthodox Jewish community, not to use uh, electricity, so he just kept it to himself.
0: There's been much that's been written about the uh, relationship between Rav Soloveitchik and Lubavitcher Rebbe going back to their days together in Berlin. How did you see that relationship between those two great Torah giants? And a second question, how, how did Rav Soloveitchik become an expert in the Tanya, and I think you mentioned there also that, that he, whether jokingly or not, said that he could have written a, a, a parish, an interpretation and commentary on the Tanya. Okay, so
1: first of all, his relationship to Chabad, to the movement of we call the Babich, goes back to his early days in the town of Chaslovich, where his father was the town rabbi, where many, many of the um, residents were Chabad. And the cheder that the Rav was sent to as a boy uh, was a Chabadnik. The teacher with the Rebbe, the Malamed, was a Chabadnik. Um, they they The family went to Brisk, to the grandfather for Pesach, and Chaim, the great Rav Chaim wanted to know what his grandson has accomplished so far in a few months of cheder, in t- Torah, in Mishnah, in Halacha. He actually knew very little from that cheder, but he did know the stories of the rebbe's. He knew the story of the first rebbe, the next rebbe, and he was able to quote from the Tanya by heart a few sentences because that's what this malamed was teaching. Uh, so he had this very very early exposure to Chabad. What happened was Raphaim tells his son to take him out of the cheder, and the rebbe was actually homeschooled from age six or seven until age nineteen. Reb never went to a yeshiva, which is a uh, fabulous, is inter- very interesting in itself. But in 1926. When the family resided then in Warsaw after World War One, the um, the Ralph decides to go to the Polish University for a year or two, and then he moves on to Berlin, 1926, to study philosophy. Now Berlin was the center uh, of of philosophical studies, and he meets up there with two giant, two future giants. One would be Rav Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who is then the son-in-law of the previous, the sixth Lubavitch Rebbe, and the other was Rav Yitzhak Hutner to become the great Rosh Yeshiva of the uh, Chaim Berlin Yeshiva, um, the author of the Pacha Yitzhak uh, S- uh, Svarim. With the Lubavitch Rebbe, the Rebbe told me that they, there was this uh, very introverted student there with a with a kippah, and he was the Rebbe was told that he's the son-in-law of the Lubavitch Rebbe, and the Rebbe befriended him. Rebbe took the initiative to get to know him. And they they became friends. I mean, friends, you know, they didn't go out to the ball games. They they, they, had, some, they had things in common to talk about. And it's interesting that the told me that that in the lecture hall, the Ramanacham and Lushnersen uh, would have Sifre Kodesh, whether it's Halacha or Kabbalah, in a stand up position. He told me like a Sephardi, say for Torah, uh, stand up, and his head would be buried into the Sparim as if he wasn't paying attention to anything going on in the lecture. Yet when it came to the end of the semester, it was clear that Benachemind Schneerson did better than all the other students. So his mind was functioning simultaneously on two frequencies. The Ruff said this was the most amazing mind he's seen in his life. And the and Ruff has seen good minds in his life. That's for sure. So um, he was a, a, a good friend, which carried on later on in New York into the great last meeting in 1980 at the 770 with the Rebbe or celebrated his 30th year of being Rebbe, and the went, Rav went, and that I speak about in the book as well. But the Tanya fascinated the Rav, just like any other book of Jewish thought. I mean the Rav read obviously not only the Rambav's Mor and the Bukhim, the guide to the perplexed, but Yudalevi's Kuzari and the Maral, and anything that was of a thoughtful nature, the Rub was was interested, inspired. He wanted to see other trends and so on. So Chabad had a lot to offer on the intellectual side. You would never think that the rub was identifying with Chabad as somebody at the uh, at the airport asking you if you put fill-in on this morning. He wasn't that activist of a Chabadnik. But he did say that if my arm was twisted and it had to be a Chassid, I would choose Chabad. And that was because of his intellectual connection with the movement. Uh, he would cite Tanya at various junctures of public lectures. This wouldn't happen in the day-to-day Gemarach here, but in public Public lectures to make certain points. I recall that he would cite the Tanya. Now he told my older brother, Rabbi Yosef Adler, that um, yeah, he he he's writing a little running commentary, and he he kibitzed, and he said that you know maybe one day the world's going to find out that I knew the Tanya better than the Rebbe. Besides that, that was just a fit of humor, not to be taken all too seriously. But he did it did show that he felt he had a handle on the Sefer and he really uh, knew what this was all about. So studying the Tanya was not like a Lubavitcher Chosid studying the Tanya, reading it religiously, like some people read Tillam. He he was reading it deeply, comparing it to Rambam and to others, and so on. So he was, and he liked the Rebbe personally very, very much.
0: Um, perhaps a, a, a hot topic, uh, but it really maybe shouldn't be. Um, the Rav Rav Solveig's position on women learning Torah and Do we see that influence today in what might be the the change that's occurred in women learning Torah over the last decades?
1: Okay, so first of all, whether all groups will agree or not agree, um, feminism made its mark on Jewish life as well. If you compare today, um, even in the most uh, ultra-Orthodox Haredi circles, the place and role of women and transfer that back, transpose it back 100 years, you will see that women have, to use the phrase of the feminist, have come a long way, baby. They really have changed. It has changed. It is not identical. Um, and with regard to Torah learning, um, this was um, uh, took, came about um, at, after World War I with uh, Sara Schneers receiving the approbation of the Geri Rebbe, the Belzer Rebbe, and the Chavetz Chaim, to begin the Beis Yaakov network. And I remember um, when the Ruv in 1976, 1977, uh, when the Stern College, the women's division of Yeshiva College, of uh, Yeshiva University, opened up its Bateman-Rush program, and the Ruv was invited to deliver the opening shear. Uh There, the, um, the Ruv knew that Yeshiva University is going to have this widely publicized, and the Ruv was willing to do it, even though he very much shied away from publicity. But here, he was willing to extend his reputation to this particular cause. Now, I once, in private conversation with Rob's daughter, Dr. Ta- Tara Twersky, Shalom, she told me that when it came to the Torah, her father was the greatest feminist of all because he believed in equality. When they started, he, when the Rob and his wife, uh, Tonya, Shalom, they started, they founded the Mamani School in Boston in 1937, it was completely coed. Uh, from kindergarten and then it went all the way up to twelfth grade uh and never changed and The renewal was going on in the orthodox circle in the United States, and uh he never ever changed that system because he felt that um if the uh if there would be no girls and young ladies in the school and there would only be a boys school and the girls would have to go to public school um they would really suffer from terms of being religiously observant. Uh, and God-fearing people. And furthermore, if there was a girl's school side by side to a boy's school, he felt that the girls would receive a second grade, um, an inferior type of Torah education. Uh, The the efforts would not be equal as to the boys. And the only way the girls would receive a superior Torah education, if they would be in the same classroom with the boys. My brother asked the about the social side to having especially teenagers, you know, as they say, Mela, you know, you have first grader or the second grade of boys and girls. But if you have 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15 adolescents going through their hormonal changes and the boys and girls situations, the Rav said that educators are going to have to stand up and deal with this. And he felt that they can deal with it. Um, I, I can tell you that um while our yeshiva and Khashmanoyam, Yeshiva B'nei Akiva, Neer tamid. parenthetically, the tamid is Torat Morenu Yosef Dov, the, which is a memory of the Rub, who was named by the Tversky and Lichtenstein families uh, two years after the Rav passed away, 1995. Um, so this was a boys' yeshiva. But it's a yeshiva B'nai Akiva where we're not oblivious to the fact that the fellas in high school have girlfriends uh, in, who go to Upanot and they work together and serve together in the B'nai Akiva group uh, all the time. Um, and we took this as an educational challenge, and not to say, "Hey, this is forbidden." I went to a yeshiva high school in Borough and if you were caught talking to a girl in the library on Friday afternoon, it was grounds for expulsion, for expulsion from the yeshiva. We didn't do that. We we believed that we could co- uh, train boys and young ladies to cultivate uh, friendship relationships that would still maintain the barriers of tsniut and and and, pra- and proper practice. And I can tell you the yeshiva since 1995 have hundreds and hundreds of graduates. And we're very, very proud with the results that um, uh, one of my sons is a graduate from the yeshiva. And it's uh, it's really something that can be done. The rough felt it could be done. And in practice, in his school, in Maimonides, it was done. I taught for many years at Midrashat Moriah, one of the very fine schools for young ladies to come from the gap year, the gap year uh, for a year from, Chutz, from Chutzlaretz. My best students were from the Maimonide School and the Flatbush School in uh, in in, uh, in in Brooklyn. They 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 came with unbelievable background and also representing, I would say, the finest of a, a Torah observant young lady. So the Rav believed yes, and he believed it in his family too. He taught his two daughters Torah, and they became educators as well. The Rav's granddaughter is the head of uh, Migdal Oz, the women's division of uh, Yeshiva HaRatzion in the in the Gush area. I once gave a talk there in Migdalos. I said, you all owe a great deal of debt of gratitude to the Rav because he broke the ice for all of these programs, whether it's Matan or Nishmat or the Barilan Midrasha program, uh, Drisha, and there's just so many programs out there of the highest level, Lindenbaum, the highest level. And, and, and the Rav really gave his uh, spiritual blessing. So I asked the Rav the morning after the uh, shear that he gave at the Stern College. I said, Rebbe, how do you feel being in a, in a revolutionary? He says, revolutionary? He says Sarah Schneider was a revolutionary in 1917. says, afterwards, it was only a question of syllabus. So he says, I just upgraded the syllabus a little bit. That's all. But she was the revolutionary.
0: Um, Rafaelovich, of course, <laughs> um, managed to uh, get out of Europe before the war, um, escaped to 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 America before the Shoah began. Um, specifically, how did the Shoah impact on Rafaelovich's view on Jewish activism?
1: That that's a very very important point in the most biography. Uh, indeed, he left uh, Berlin 1932 before Hitler came to power. And he sat out the Holocaust in America and spoke often afterwards about being very, very disappointed in himself and in the Jewish community, the Orthodox Jewish community, of being terribly silent during the years of the Shoah. And this is one of the reasons that the Rock became more active in the Soviet Jewry uh, movement of the 70s and would allow the yeshiva students and the Kolo students. To take leave from the Beit Midrash to attend some of the demonstrations because he said he did not want to violate the same avera twice in one life, one's lifetime, uh, which means, uh, um, and, and this is something that uh, the Rav was pretty careful about with regards specifically with the Shoah, before the Holocaust. The Rav in his family tradition were Agudat Yisrael people. And Agudat Yisrael, before the war, did not look favorably on the Zionist enterprise of establishing a Jewish state before the coming of Mashiach. After the Holocaust, the Rav makes an about face. He was most probably the only one of the surviving Gidolei Yisrael to make such an about face. Mm-hmm. Most of the others who were alive and well before and alive and well after, whether they were in America or in the United States, remained um, committed to their ideology. The Rav changed his mind, and he paid dearly in the yeshiva world for this change of mind. The Rav was basically ostracized by the aguda yeshiva world for the two sins that he committed. One was becoming a Zionist. He joins the Mizrahi. And the second is because of his involvement in, in a higher secular education, which also didn't go over well in Lakewood. So while... The Rav was a personal friend of Rav Aaron Nevertheless, the system of what becomes the Lakewood Yeshiva, a very anti-Yeshiva university, very, very anti, and, and, and did not look favorably on the Rav. Uh, but nevertheless, the Rav was courageous, and he stuck to his guns till the very end of his life and believed that Am Yisrael has to do whatever it can to build up a... A, 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 an Eretz Yisrael that would reflect that which Torah Yisrael to is all about, because the Rabbi always talked about that exile galut is not only limited to the fact that Am Israel Jewish nation, was in exile. It says the land is also in exile, and the Torah is in exile, and 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 he and he felt what religious Zionism was all about was actually the redemptive process of bringing the Torah back to its previous glory. And that can only happen when there's a sustainable Jewish community in Eretz Israel practicing mitzvot that are Eretz israel bound mitzvot. And, and he felt uh, ident- totally identified with the Zionist movement. That doesn't mean he didn't have critical comments to say. He did. He was the guest speaker annually at the conventions of the Mizrahi in New York. In America. And he would criticize here and there, but he would say that I'm criticizing from the inside, from as a family man, not from the outside. And he would hope that some of these critical comments would be, they would take heed to what he had to say. But the the basic, basic feeling was that um, we indeed should be active and not just sit on the sidelines in bringing about the cultivation of Eretz Israel in terms of, uh, he said, we, we need more more religious kibbutzim, we need more farmers, we need more businessmen, this, more that, more that. He used to say that science and technology, that's not necessarily our forte, and we can leave that to the Americans. Well, guess what? Our great Rebbe was wrong. Israel became a global leader in science and technology as well.
0: So what, what was, what was Rav position, therefore, his stance on Aliyah, and did he encourage his students to make Aliyah? I, I've heard stories where some students uh, got permission or went to get the bracha, but it was, wasn't something that they received, perhaps, um, enthusiastically, uh, at the beginning, at least. Okay. How, how do you understand that, Rabbi right. I
1: So you're going to talk to different people. You're going to get different takes on this. And each one is going to say, I heard from the rov," And they're all telling you the truth. Because the Ruff said different things sometimes to different people based on what they wanted to hear. The, um, the fact is, the Ruff spoke enthusiastically, very enthusiastically, in 1956, eight years after the state was established, on the Yom Hatzmuth get-together at YU. Um, it, it, the, the, today, it's a it's, it's a manifesto on religious Zionism, Koldo the Dofeg. It was a speech in Yiddish, been translated to English and, and to Hebrew many times over. And there, he talks very, very favorably about Aliyah. And he speaks about it too in these Mizrahi talks. With regard to going on Aliyah, in theory, the Rav felt, yes, that's what we should be doing. When it came to his own students, who were specifically going into Chinuch and Rabbanut, education and rabbinate, there, the Rav felt that there was still a need to be responsible to the diaspora community. He felt this. And I just used the word diaspora almost inappropriately because the Rav didn't like the word diaspora. He said it legitimizes being in Chutzlar, it's in, abroad. He said he liked the word galut, exile, so you feel detached. But nevertheless, the, the, the Rav felt that, if, especially if you started out, as was the case in my case, I was already a rabbi in Long Island City, Astoria, Queens, for two years. And I was teaching in the Yeshiva High School in Paramus, New Jersey, the Frisch School. The Rav had high hopes for me in America. He actually told me in 20 years he'll be president of the RCA, the Rabbinical Council of America, and I said, Rebbe, uh, I, I, I actually said, do you have any other kolot up your sleeve? But my editor didn't let me write that, and he said, you have any blessings with uh, quotes up your sleeve? And uh, the rub laughed, and 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 he said that um, he really he really felt he was nervous. He was nervous that I might get lost in Israel. Uh, thank God I didn't get lost in Israel. I'm in mean, Israel 44 years. And uh, we've done some things here in this country. But he he was worried about myself, he was worried about his own son-in-law, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein Zatzal, who, who made tremendous contribution uh, in the Yeshivat HaRatzion. It's true, had Rav Lichtenstein stayed at Yeshiva University, he was already to Rosh Khalel, He would have been the number one person after the Rav passed on. All this is true. But uh, Rav Lichtenstein, for me, was a role model. And he was the Talmud Muvag of the Rav. And he was the son-in-law of the Rav. And if he left, for two shacks in a foot in 1971, I could also do it. And 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 here I told the Rav, I said, thank God I'm a Talmid of the Rav, a student and not a Hasid. Because if you're a Hasid, the Rebbe tells you something, you don't even think that you should be doing it otherwise. But a Misnagid works differently. And the Rav gave what he thought to be good advice, but he always said, it's your life and you do what you think is correct. Um, so it is true. I know not only myself, Rabbi Riskin, also had the same story that I had and other great people who I felt made ultimately great contributions to religious life here in Israel. Um, they received half-baked uh, uh, greetings, but I try to work it out with him. I write in the book several of my discussions with the Rav on this that were pure drashot, and he liked them as drashot, but um, you know, he was still um, hopeful that maybe I would stick around Uh, a few more years, but I was grateful that the day that we left on the 8th of Tammuz in 1979, in a phone call conversation with Rov, and he was then in Boston, we received a very nice warm bracha. Anyway, so at least we closed the parashan properly.
0: Um, Rafael Solvenczyk had a a very um, adamant position in regards to interfaith religious dialogue um, against Interfaith religious dialogue. Yet, uh, I think you bring in in the book that um, he, he had personal discussions regarding the issues of faith with Cardinal Willebrands. Um Why and how did that? How do, how do you understand that?
1: Okay, so we go back to Pope John the twenty fourth, if I'm not mistaken, nineteen sixty three. You have the Ecumenical Council, and there the Pope actually. Uh, makes some very, very important statements, theological statements about Christianity, that he does not, the church does not hold our generation's Jews responsible for the crucifixion. So, you know, we got up and we said, shkoyach, you know, thank you very much. But but, but the fact that millions of Jews were slaughtered in the last 2,000 years because they actually did but all right, it's what the Gemara the, uh, calls Modebe Mikzat. He came around a little bit. So he invites, the Pope invites Jewish leaders to the Vatican to discuss theology and to see where we have some meeting grounds and meeting points for discussion. The Rub writes an article that year, published in 1964 in Tradition, called Confrontation, uh, where he strongly advises against uh, joining uh, those discussions at the Vatican. The the Rub's position was totally adopted by the entire Orthodox camp, there was even a, a, a Lubavitcher Rebbe at the time wanted to put something down in writing, and he got a hold of the Ruv's article, Confrontation. And on stationery of 770 Eastern Parkway of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, they reprint the Ruv's article with the Ruv's name, of course, with the Lubavitcher Rebbe at the end signing... I agree with all the affirmation of the all above, Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Like, why bother, you know, create the wheel a second time? It's been said so eloquently, and the Rebbe the agreed with every word that the Ruff said, and, and he publishes it on 770 Stationery. The um, the Reform Movement did send delegates, and the Conservative Movement were split. Some did, some don't, you know, that uh, Conservative Movement has its, has its right wing, its left wing, its centrist as well, and, and and that was the case. So it was a mood issue after the 1964 article of confrontation. In the years that I drove the Rav in 74, 75, I came across an article in the Yiddish newspaper, Algemeiner Journal. And they reported that several years earlier, it did not have a date that the Rav had a conversation with a cardinal on religious matters. And I questioned Derov in the car. I said, Bevy, uh, how does this sit, sit with the article of confrontation? And the Ruff said something very interesting. So first of all, uh, I, I had to figure out in my own research which cardinal it was, because I knew there was a Cardinal Cushing and a Cardinal Spellman. One was in New York. One was Boston. I didn't exactly know which cardinal it was. I know there's a baseball team, the St. Louis Cardinals, but I figured it wasn't them either. So who was it? So I did some I went to my primary source for investigation Rabbeinu Google Shlita and on Google I was able to come up with this Cardinal Willembrand, a Dutch a Dutch cardinal who in a speech in 1985 reports to a Vatican committee about the meeting he had with Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik in 1971 in a New York hotel and he quotes from from that discussion so that happened there's no question that the meeting happened And the Ruff told me that in Confrontation article, I was talking public policy. I didn't want that the Jewish organization should officially be represented and and something would come out of it. The Ruff also smelled a little bit some missionary activity that might be behind the invitation of the Pope. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. On the other hand, on a very, very private level, the Ruff felt that there is some value in having a, a rabbi of his own stature meet up with a leader of another religion of of a great stature as well. But they have to be met on the level that they are acquainted with each other, not just personally, but also in terms of the subject matter. The Ruff told me, in order to sit with a a Christian religious leader, you have to know Christianity. And he says, how many of the Gidole Yisrael, how many of the great Torah giants of the day, know Christianity as well as I do? This is what the Rav says. I mean, just think for a second. Do you think Ramosa Feinstein could have sat and dialogued with a? a, a, a I'm sure he could, would not be able It's not like in the days of the Ramban, where in the in th- in 12th, in 13th century, where, where he deals with the uh, Pablo Christianity dis- dispute, disputations, where obviously the Ramban knew Christianity through and through. The Rav did know. The Rav was well-read. He knew cultures of the world very, very deeply and was able to make that assessment. So he felt on a private, personal level he wanted to have some insight of what the Christian leader had in mind, and he was willing to share some things with that person. But this was not publicized at the day. Mind you, this went public years later. And, um, and the, the rough said, it was a private conversation, and it's like off-the-record type, of, off type of thing. I felt I could do it. But um, on the question of the rough saying, uh, uh, testifying about himself, you know, how many of the Gedolay Israel uh, know Christianity as well as I do? he's making a statement that he believes that he belongs to the category of Gedolei Israel. And that's interesting in itself because the rabbi once talked about humility. And he talked about the verse of Moshe Rabbeinu where it says, Aish Moshe Anav Adam." Moses was the greatest hum- humble person in the world. So what does that mean? He thought he was nothing? Afar ve'efer, just the dust of the ground? No. The rabbi said, Moshe, said Anavah, humility means a correct ses- self-assessment. You're not greater than you are, but you're also not lower than when you are because if you have great talents and abilities and there's something to be done, and we need a responsible person who's capable, and you shy away because of this humility no it's not for me i'm not such a great person the blah, 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 blah. rough said that's shirking responsibility. You were given those talents so that you can use them, and if you're a great person, you have to utilize that greatness. And the Rav felt that Moshe Rabbeinu knew exactly who Moshe Rabbeinu was. He said Rabbi Akiva knew who Rabbi Akiva was, the Rambam knew who the Rambam was, and I know who I am. It was an amazing comment. And this was not something that we would say in the Hebrew slang, a shvitzer, somebody who's bragging. He was not bragging. He was telling us what he felt was authentic humility, that he understood who he was. And, 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 And therefore he felt sometimes he had obligations to, to, to talk to people and so on. And he did it.
0: Um, what was Rav position on uh, one Jew being Moser, um, telling the authorities of the activities of another Jew, specifically uh, in the realm of potential financial criminal behavior?
1: Okay, so this came up in conversation with the Rove in connection to a scenario that my own sister, the same sister from Hashmanoim, when she was a, a whole 18 years old and was teaching in one of the uh, affiliated Beis Yaakov Network schools. I'm not going to mention the school. I'm not going to mention the, um, the principal. But the principal was receiving funding for um, the salaries of the young teachers from the state of New York. He was um, giving the... The teachers their checks of the salary, but was demanding a two thirds of the money should be contributed back to the school. So that's a kickback scam. And uh, the the young ladies were were actually they were still making some money, even though they were earning a third of what the government was paying for these salaries. And um, my father asked me, my father Olbershalm asked me to if I can ask the rov what he thought about this practice, knowing that the rov. Would would would, uh, would would regurgitate just to hear uh, some something like this going on in a Torah-inspired institution. Uh, so so the word Moser was a bad word. It was used in the in the Middle Ages where where uh, people would um, squeal on others to the authorities, and more often than not, it either led to long-term imprisonment and sometimes even execution. And therefore, Jews never never. Talked against other Jews to the authorities, and that became very much part and parcel of the enclosed Jewish community, almost an unwritten rule. But now we're talking about a, a scenario, a culture, a society was very, very different. We're not talking about uh, going to the, uh, the the district attorney and reporting about um, this kind of uh, illegal activity, where somebody's going to be incarcerated for life and maybe even executed. We're talking about preventing a larger Chilu Hashem. There's no question that this is a Chilu Hashem when this story goes public. The Rebels of the opinion that it is better to expose a small Chilu Hashem than let it get out of hand because there will be a day where we will be exposed on a larger level and the Chilu Hashem is going to be even greater. And indeed, in this particular scenario, the individual involved, Years later, was tried, convicted, and went to jail, and uh, and the and the situation was was much greater than simply a kickback scam. The Rav believed that the, um, the 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 financial side of an institution has to be run according to Torah, uh, no different than the kashrut, the food that people eat. He used to quip and say that to be frum, to be religious, in the first three sections of Shulchan Aruch. That deal with uh, davening, aruchayim, and Shabbat and Yom Tov, and and with regard to kosher, Yoradeya, and with regard to marital issues, Ezer, uh, there people are very very fluent, very religious. When it comes to chosher the fourth section of Shulchan Aruch, the Rav said, uh, uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, they they, they, they become uh, God doesn't exist. It's it's just they just not there, and it's it's a very very big problem. Very big problem. And that's why in the rough school in Maimonides, he insisted that the uh, budget of the school would only uh, be, uh, be collected by tuition of parents and contributions. But he would not like to see government funding for the school because he felt, look, as long as he's alive, he can watch things. He was like he was our moral compass. He was so honest that he knew that the people who were running the school would never do anything. But nobody lives forever. And therefore, he wanted to make sure that even after he passes on, the school is run, um, that God forbid there should never be a scandal of of such a nature, which we know very well, both in Israel and in the United States, there have been scandals. And and they do so much damage to the reputation of Torah uh, when these things happen. And, and, And what happens is that some of these gangsters, and I have no other word for it, hide behind the Moser, and they know that most Jews won't go to the authority, and that's how they get away with it. And this has to be stopped.
0: Um, when and why did Rav Soloveitchik ever deviate from the customs, from the minhagim of the Soloveitchik brisk family traditions?
1: Yeah, so so generally speaking, the uh, Rav's traditions, um, you could see it in his own uh, davening in terms of Nusach, which basically hailed from the Vilnigoin, who inspired the yeshiva of Olojin, which ultimately inspires um, the two great Ravonim of Brisk. Uh, one was the Rav's great grandfather, Rav Yosef Dov Ber, the Rav's namesake, who is Rosh Hashiva parallel, co Rosh with the Netsiv of at the Voloshin Yeshiva, then to become Rav Brisk and his son, Rav Chaim Salvechik, and his son, of course, the, the Ravelvo, Yitzhak Zeb Ravelvo Soloveitchik. So they have the tradition from Voloshin slash the Vilna and most of their practices were in conformity, uh, with their, with their tradition. However, the roof was not locked into anything if sometimes circumstance may have changed that, that deserved some type of alteration. Uh, I speak about it with regard to the very well known uh, tradition of the Vilna not to go to graveside visitations, uh, even on a yard site of a parent, which is, Strange, because I think it's so uh, commonplace that uh, the at the year of the uh, death of a parent, people do a graveside visitation and sometimes bring a minion and say a kaddish there and so on. The Vilna Goyne was a little bit nervous about making gravesites into big splashes, as we know occur in various circles, uh, i.e., Morone, Shembaichoi, Oman, from Bratslav, in in the Dumona with the Babasali. So these things have happened. We know that. Uh, and the Vilni was was diehard against it. Um, so uh, to the extreme, not to make any graveside visitations. After the funeral of a parent, you go home and that's it, finish. You, said, you get over the Avelut after a year, you don't go back. But the Rav had that minhag until 1967. What happened was his, his wife passed away in 67. And after his wife's passing, Dovs did something that, in his own words, was obsessive behavior. He went to the graveside of his wife's kever every single Friday for years, and he would say Kaddish every dominic for his wife. And he he was asked about this in a film that was made in two thousand five two thousand six called uh, Lonely Man of Faith. He was asked about this, and he said uh, he said in an interview somebody t- uh, spoke about this, and Dov was quoted as saying, "What can I do? I can't help it." He was the connection between the Rav and his wife was such. He, her death was such a crushing blow to her, to him. He, he it was hard for him to part, and therefore he just went back. And I mentioned this to Rav Shechter, my great Rebbe, my great Rebbe Rav Shechter, in his books on the Rav. And the first one was published just a year after the Rav passed away in 1994, Nefesh Araf, where he writes that the Rav did not make uh, graveside visitations in conformity with the Vilna Gaon's opinion. And I told him, I said, Rebbe, but you know the Rav went to the graveside of his wife every Friday. This is this is common knowledge. Everybody in Boston knows it. Half the people in New York know it. So and furthermore, in 1975, the Rub asked me to take him to a Brooklyn cemetery, to the graveside of his father on the third of Shvat for the yard side. So R so said, well apparently after the rabbits had died, he changed his custom. Okay. So I thought Ravshakta, we have to change it. So Ravshakta threw it back to me. He says, okay, you know what? You write it up and change yeah. it. So I did. And I wrote in the book, Rav Shechter wrote the beautiful bracha at the beginning of the book, and I spoke to him about this. He said, Absolutely right, you set the record straight. And 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 the Rav changed his been on this. There's no question about it, because of circumstance. But there was another interesting case. The Rav gave a, a shear in memory of his father on the third of Shvat, which he would do for years. These were the Magnificent four hour long marathon she in the presence of, and here I'm not exaggerating, 3,000 people and no break in the action, non stop sheer, four hours. And he would have the people spellbound um, with halakha and then Jewish hamaletics. It was unbelievable. The year in 1979, the last one that I heard before my aliyah, and he spoke about Kiddush. And he spoke about Kiddush in the morning, among other things. And he said that the, that the Rambam's opinion that the Rambam's opinion uh, before um, uh, on Kiddush in the morning was simply to take a cup of wine and say Bar Pera and he said that my grandfather, Rav that's what he did for Kiddush in the morning so somebody in the crowd had the, the the audacity the courage even to yell out so what did the Rav do? You know, he's saying my grandfather did Bar Pera what did the Rav do? So the Rav said, well I, I say, and I say, uh, why? So first he says, and this is a little fit of humor of the rub he says, because it's printed in the benches. And I'm telling you, 3,000 people just cracked up. It was such a, everybody, everybody was on the floor. Because we knew this was not an answer that the rub would give. He gave it as a, just a funny thing, funny comment. And then he says, and don't you ever forget I had another grandfather. And that was very important because the Rav grew up in his maternal grandfather's home by the Feinsteins, by Rav Elia Feinstein in the town of Prujan. And as a little boy, he heard his grandfather, Rav Elia Feinstein, who was an uncle of Rav Moshe Feinstein, say Kiddush in the morning. This is what he remembers from Kiddush as a child. He grew up on that. So later on in life, he hears that his grandfather in Brisk, Rav Chaim does it like the Rambam, just saying, but you know, what you experience as a child lives on with you. So even though the um, the Haim had the the, the the custom of velogen and was probably hailed from the Vilna which comes from the Rambam, the eh, Rav felt very comfortable continuing. And then he told us, don't you ever forget, you're all hybrids. You all have two grandfathers. So while it's true that most of our customs come from the paternal side, but occasionally, it's the maternal side that will have an impact on what becomes the minak in your house. That was very instructive. Don't forget, you also have another grandfather.
0: I have the, um, this may be a little hard because, you know, obviously so many beautiful stories and, and encounters, conversations that you bring down. Your favorite personal rough celebration story, if you may.
1: Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Okay, um, I'm going to have to zero in on one of most probably my greatest defining moments uh, with the Rav. Uh There was a great philanthropist, Joseph Bruce, a Shalom, who donated much money. The Rov told me $100 million to Jewish causes before he even met him. And it, it was a whole story how it came about, and I write about it in the book, um, how the Rov ultimately brings Mr. Gruss into the world of philanthropy for Torah. And ultimately, Gruss becomes a great friend of Torah education, where he builds a new building in the Borough Park section of Brooklyn of my high school alma mater, Yeshiva Torah Semis Kamenitz, And he makes a dinner in that building, honoring himself. And he invites all the other great rabbanim who he gave money to. And at that dinner was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and it was Schneer Kotler from Lakewood, and it was Rav Kalmanovich from Mir, and there really was an all-star cast of gedolim at this. And everybody was given two minutes to say nice words about Mr. Gruss. The Rov was the um, guest speaker, and he spoke 20 minutes. I, in the book, you can see uh, what he said at that time, but what happened was at the end, the moment the speech, his speech ended, the Rav came off the podium, and the waiters started coming out serving food. Uh, because I was an alumnus of this yeshiva, the, the executive director had invited myself and my wife also. They knew I was coming because I was the driver. But um, but in the car was also the rough son-in-law, Rav Professor Yitzhak Tversky, who came in for this dinner as well. And um, and, and as the waiters were coming out with the food, the Rav comes off the podium, signals to me, we're going. I said, Rabbi, what do you mean we're going? We're sitting down to eat a dinner now. We came for a dinner. So we're going, we're going. I had to tell my wife, guess what? You know, we're leaving. We're not eating here. So disappointed at all, we get into the car. And Rabbi Tversky Elvisholm, tells me, I have to make a plane in the Guadi in 20 minutes. I said, Rabbi Tversky, this is the Brooklyn Police Expressway. I'm not sure I can do this. He says, if you get me to that plane, I will give you a smicha in Maase merkava, which is the which is the the chariot scene of uh, Yecheskel Navi, which I'm going to say parenthetically, he made the plane. And years later, in a lecture that he gave as a guest speaker at the Ben-Gurion University, I went in to hear him, and he looked at me, and he said, I owe you a cloth, you know, a certificate, a parchment, because, you know, I owe you a smicha, because, I, I mean, he remembered that I made the plane. Fine. We're at the airport in the Guadi airport. I drop off Rabbi Twersky. I'm going to drive to Washington Heights to the Ruff's apartment, and the Ruff tells me, um, I'm hungry. I said, "Rebbe, we were just at a dinner. The waiters are just rolling out the food, and you asked to leave. And now you told me you're hungry. I remembered that this is now Sunday night. The roof always came in on Tuesday. My brother would always fill up the refrigerator on Monday with food. I knew the refrigerator was empty. I said, Rebbe, there's no food in your apartment. I live in Kew Gardens Hills, 10 minutes away from the LaGuardia Airport. Please come to my house, and I'll give you dinner and I'll bring you back to Yeshiva. And he agreed. My wife's sitting in the back seat, she's ready to faint. And um, but we came home and we spent three hours with the rav in my house. Uh, he spent some time trying to calm my wife down. So with some small talk about people in the neighborhood, he was charming, absolutely charming. You have to realize that the rav in Boston was very personable, very approachable. In New York, he was stoic. We had fear. We had not fear. I'm sorry. awe. It was a tremendous amount of awe. The fact that I had a little bit of a warming down effect because of the driving, that was unusual. But for most people, they just, you know, they, they just couldn't open their mouth for the roof. And here you were sitting in the house and, and we were talking and schmoozing about different things of great importance. About the history of Glad Kosher, for example, and which I write about in the book, and his approach to the Muslim movement, which I write about in the book there, there there are things conversations that happen in that encounter of those three hours that were we'll never forget it we'll never ever forget it um how how remarkably uh, pleasant that because i I was unsure of how this was going to work out. I was going to come to my house, and we we didn't have a my wife was expecting her first we were young married. Um, and 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 uh, it was a quiet, empty house, and there he was, there he was, and um, charming, absolutely charming, um, and uh, it, w- it was just just wonderful. I, I say it was a defining moment for us because from then on, uh, all conversations became. It started off in a different place, already It really started off. I can tell you that uh, in the time that I took the roof to the cemetery to his father. Uh, so I talk about the fact that he took out a tillum and it's the two of us, you know, it's spooky. It's two of us standing in a cemetery in the daytime, three in the afternoon. And he takes out a tillum and they didn't take out a tillum. He said till a pair of by heart. I said, this was a, uh, a, a, a Litvak, uh, uh no tears, no emotion, dry as they come. Then he takes me by the hand like a grandfather. And we, we take a little tour of this, of the monuments in this plot called Hevra Anche Brisk. This brisk uh, society of New Yorker immigrants. And, um, and, and he's telling me who each person was. He knew them. It was just wonderful. I, I, we really felt that we, we earned a third grandfather in our life. It didn't happen to most of the students in the sheer. Um, the people in Boston did have that qualitative edge over us, uh, that they saw the Rav as a Rav and we saw him as a Rosh Hashiva. And, and it's two different personas completely. So it, it was a tremendous school, a tremendous merit that I got to see the Rav on that level. And I dedicated the book to my older brother, who give him a um, he was the Rav's shamus, he was the Rav who was attending to the Rav's needs in the apartment uh, that year in 74. He called me up in September and he asked me if I would be the Rav driver that year. I said yes. I hung up the phone, I almost fainted. I literally almost fainted. Just think for a second, I have a 10-year-old Chevrolet, and the Rove's going to sit to my right. I mean, how are we going to do this? But we, we mustered enough courage up. I can tell you that I was at LaGuardia Airport the first Tuesday before the Rove even got to Logan Airport in Boston. I was so nervous that first uh, time. But then I got over it, and I knew when to come on time. Yeah,
0: this has been absolutely uh, magnificent. Just fascinating and, and really be- beautiful stories. and urge all our viewers and listeners as I did, uh, simply to go on to Amazon, click of a button, free delivery, anywhere in the world, seventy conversations in transit with our gone, Joseph B. the Grafa, and Rabbi Adler, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it very, very much. Thank
1: you very, very much. And as we enter Tishab, we should have days of Mihamav consolation and um and a little act of unity amongst all of Clark Israel.
0: Amen. Thank you again. Thank you.